0: Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin
1: Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Thursday, October 5th, 2023 edition of Invest Talk. I am Justin Klein, and we have a little less than an hour today to help you take that next step, give you some actionable ideas. And some data points that can help you make good decisions with your money. Uh, And this is a road that can be complicated. It can be daunting to, to many. But it can be done. There are millions of people that have utilized the investment markets to build great wealth for themselves, their family, and build financial freedom. And that's what we're to help you do. Now, we're going to talk about the market performance today. We're going to run down some show topics per usual, but we're going to get right to our first listener question now.
2: How you doing? This is Brett from New Jersey. I'm calling about BSR Real Estate Trust, ticker BSRTF. Looks like it's a very small company, but it looks like it is at a very fair value. I just wanted to get your guys' opinion on it before I pull the trigger or decide not to. Thanks again for all you do. Bye-bye.
1: Interesting. Okay. Ah, this actually hits with one of our main show topics. So, this is BSR Realty Investment Trust. $404 million market cap. So, very small. It's down pretty dramatically from its high last March. Uh, It was around $22 per share. Now we're at 11. So, it's down 50% since then. And what do they do? Well, They're engaged in the business to acquire and operate multifamily residential rental properties with a focus on garden-style multifamily communities in select high-growth markets across the Sun Belt region of the United States, mainly Arkansas, Texas, and Oklahoma. And the simple answer is these REITs are in for a world of hurt. A world of hurt. Why is that? It's because nationally, more than 900 And 50,000 multifamily units are under construction today. This is according to the U.S. Census Bureau. That equals three times the number for apartment construction from two decades ago. And this is going to hit over the next 18 months. And Sun Belt cities are the most exposed to the ramp up in new supply hitting the market. So, within the apartment REIT sector. These are the type of names that you want to avoid the most. You don't want to have exposure to this. And on top of that, they have a lot of debt on their balance sheet. $785 million in long-term debt. Now, that stopped going up. That's good. But compared to a market cap of only $404 million, that smells like trouble to me. And the technicals, as you would imagine, are pretty bad. And so I would absolutely stay away from this. This is not the area of the REIT sector that you want to have exposure to. All right, now we have a lot of ground to cover over the next 45 to 50 minutes. And time permitting, we're going to get to all of the main topics or all of our topics. And the the main focus point is going to be on allocation funds. What are allocation funds you might know that you you might have access to? Allocation funds within your 401k, for example, targeted funds, that would be considered a type of allocation fund. But we're going to go over these and kind of the pros and cons of using these type of investment vehicles. Also, we're going to touch on the apartment market as that caller just brought up. We, I want to hit on this in more detail because so I talked a bit about all the units coming on market, but... This has wider ranging ramifications for the broader housing market and actually the labor market. Okay, the labor market. Also, the drug industry is seeing government fight them on drug prices. And so, what type of tactics? are the is the Biden administration using to try to get get drug prices down so we're going to look at that and then also an eight percent mortgage it sounds high but what does that mean in context to history okay is this a high number is it a low number are we uh, average we're going to talk about that okay we're also going to get, get to some voicemail questions. One is on Truest Financial and the other on Redfin Corporation. All right, let's take a look at the market today. It was a modestly down day, but really you saw a, a bit of strength in the morning. Let me pull up a intraday chart. Yeah, we actually saw weakness in the morning. We rallied back in the afternoon and had a slight sell-off into the close. And the SPY closed down $0.16. So it was basically a flat day in the markets overall. I think mainly this is waiting for tomorrow's jobs number. Now, the couple good things that happened today underneath the surface, even though you might see a slight red on all the indices, and whether that's small, mid, or large cap, But the dollar was down. That was a positive. The 10-year, that was down about 1.8 basis points, so 0.018%. The 30-year, that was actually up slightly, so that was kind of a negative. Uh, But if you look at underneath the surface, things got a little bit better, I think, in anticipation of a potential weak jobs number tomorrow. We had the ADP number yesterday miss. And ultimately, I think that's what the market may be kind of banking in, banking on. I think it's, uh, it's pausing here to see, okay, what is that number? Are the initial jobless claims numbers, which did come out again today, only 207,000 jobs. That was up only 2,000 jobs from last week. Really a, a nothing burger when it comes to economic data points. It's not telling you one thing one way or another. Uh, but that's probably why you didn't get a big update today. But if you look at some of the underlying data, I still think you get a week's job week jobs number tomorrow, and that could mean more upside if the dollar weakens. It's all about the dollar. You know, the dollar, the dollar and rates are try, are starting to break things, and we know when they start to break things, the Fed tends to start to pivot. And we may be at that point. And tomorrow's jobs number may be a catalyst for the Fed to become a little less hawkish. All right. That was our market for today. Now, as we head into a break, let me remind you to check out our new Invest Talk Classroom series. It is streaming now for free on our YouTube channel. Episode nine is now up. Understanding mutual funds and ETFs. They're common ways to invest in the market to get broad diversification. So you're wondering, should you own them? Well, it depends on what type of fund you are talking about, what type of mix of assets. And that kind of hits on our main focus point today as well. So, Head over there and check out our new episode, which is Understanding Mutual Funds and ETFs. Just search in the Invest Talk classroom on YouTube. And now the phone lines are open, waiting for your questions at eight 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 ninety nine Chart.
2: When listener questions are played on the Invest Talk podcast, how do you guys determine a value stock? The caller voices are amplified many thousands of times. Just wanted to get your opinion on. J.P. Morgan and BAC. How do you see this? Uh, looking forward. I'm 25 years old and have
1: a question about retirement funds.
2: And the unbiased answers from Justin Klein.
1: That's why it's trading so cheap, because there's a lot of regulatory risk. Here. And Steve Beasley. I,
2: I kind of like it here. If I was going to buy Tyson food, this is where I'd buy it. Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART.
1: Now, our main focus point today is on allocation funds, allocation funds. And you might know some of these types of funds in your 401k, and those would be target data funds. Now, let's back up. Allocation funds are simply a mix of, of asset classes. Stocks, bonds, cash, maybe other types of assets as well, commodities, potentially. It's a fund that takes a lot of these assets into one single package. And it gives built-in diversification as well as simplicity. Now, there are two major varieties. Now, the first one is the allocation fund that is geared towards risk. Ranging from conservative all the way to aggressive, and they might they might call them different titles, but that's kind of what they are ultimately trying to target: is a particular volatility level, risk level. And for example, if on a conservative fund, the average equity exposure is only twelve percent. For an aggressive allocation fund, it's ninety percent, and then there's everything in between. Okay, And then there's target dated funds, and they're very similar to the risk targeting fund, but they have a glide path, and they become the farther away from that target date of retirement, the more aggressive they'll be, and over time, they slowly, gradually move towards more conservative. Now target funds typically start with heavy heavy equity exposure and then they gradually reduce and the average retirement date fund at retirement is 44% of in equities, okay? 44%, kind of that 60/40 type of portfolio. Now the advantage of allocation funds is that it gives you simplicity. Do you want a glide path? Do you want to just put money in and not think about it and allow the managers to pick and choose? Now, sometimes they're not really pick and choosing. A lot of times they're just indexing. So you have to understand how they are getting exposure to equities or bonds. If you're buying a Vanguard targeted fund or an allocation fund, what are they doing? They are just going to be indexing. Now, the the main benefit here is that because of that diversity, investors typically don't make bad trading decisions because there's not really outsized gains or losses because of that diversity. So they generally provide middle-of-the-road risk and middle-of-the-road returns. And so in good times, it'll probably go up, maybe not quite as much as... Some of the pure play equity exposure you might have. But it'll still look good. In downtimes, because of that diversification, you won't see as much volatility to the downside. So you don't chase returns. You won't see these on the list of the best returning funds in any given year. Or probably the worst returning funds in any given year. Now, last year was probably one of the worst years for these allocation funds. Because they own equities and bonds, and both equities and bonds fell considerably last year. So, they're not a panacea. But if you don't have a lot of education around the investment world, and you don't want to go and pick individual securities or individual sectors, these type of of funds may be appropriate for you. Because, for example, if you're a moderate investor, How do you create a moderate portfolio? Do you know how to do that? How to keep it moderate and rebalance it? Do you know how to do that? Well, a moderate allocation fund might be right for you. Now, what to look out for? Expenses. And that's one issue here, is these are funds of funds typically, meaning they're taking the money and then they're allocating to different funds, which also have a fee. So for example, the Allspring Asset Allocation Fund has an expense ratio of 1.04%. And then the funds that they put in, put that money into, has are on average 0.57%. So you're talking about 1.6% total for the year, which is expensive for just a simple mutual fund. You don't, have an, you don't have an advisor, et cetera. Also, on top of that, they're not typically tax efficient. So having these in a taxable fund, is probably not a good idea, or ta- taxable account. So better suited for IRAs, 401ks, et cetera. And then how much should we, you have in an allocation fund? Well, once again, it depends on how hand, hands-on you want to be. They can be your one-stop shop, or they can be part of a broader mix. But these are only for people that don't want to really actively manage their portfolio, don't feel confident in that, because most of them are going to index. And obviously, indexing can cut both ways. Last year, indexing didn't do great. This year, it's been better than most. All right. We're going to a quick break. Please remember that you can call anytime and leave your questions on the Voice Voicemake. If you're listening via the live stream or on AM 1220 radio in the Silicon Valley area, you can call right now at 888-99-CHART.
2: You're building your financial future, but you must have finance and investment questions. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley are ready to provide their unbiased answers. So don't forget to call Investor, 888-99-CHART. Hey, guys. This is Rob from Chicago. Long-time listener. Obviously love the show and always appreciate all you guys do. All the information is super great. I had a question today about truth Financial, stock symbol TFC. Uh, banking sector. Just curious what your thoughts are overall and kind of the time of the year. Um, just seeing if this is something for a little bit of a long-term hold. I'd say at least three to five years, if not longer. I'm in no rush. But just curious your thoughts on the and symbol in general. And I look forward to hearing the answer on the podcast. Thanks so much.
1: All right. Looking at Truist Financial, and this is a combination of BB&T and Sun Trust. So this is, these are two regional banks that combined, and a pretty decent size, $36 billion market cap, although that has come down dramatically over the past year or so. It peaked out, let's see, where did it peak? Go to got a weekly chart. Peaked out around $68 per share. Now we're down to 27, and the relative strength, as you would imagine, is pretty bad, only 17, and I've been saying this for a while now, regional banks are not where you want to be. They were growing a couple of years ago, and clearly the, the the dynamics within the industry have shifted because of higher interest rates. And this is not the place that you want to be. I think the vast majority of these this, – this is the direction the banking industry is likely to go over the next decade. It's likely to go more towards the model that you see in most other countries, which are a handful of very large banks that are watched carefully by regulators. And that's who you have your banking relationship with. One of those five to 10 largest banks Now we have already have kind of those now with, you know, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, uh, et cetera, City, uh, et cetera. Now that might cobble together into a handful more as more of these regional banks either get acquired or go under. And this is probably one of those that will get acquired probably at a much lower price, probably in times of stress, or it will just go bankrupt. They have a ton of debt. And the most positive thing here is that they're operating in the southeast region of the United States, which has good demographics, has good migration patterns, etc. But it's the balance sheet. It's those low-yielding assets and now the higher cost of capital. So, you know, what I could say is if the Fed pivots and interest rates fall, they could this could rally significantly, but that's pretty much it. I don't think this is a long-term hold. I think you said that, if this would be for a long-term hold. No, this would be for trade, and that's about it. You don't want to be in these regional banks. Okay? Thanks for the call. And let's touch a bit on... The apartment market. And what you're seeing, as I said at the top of the show, is a glut of new apartment supply coming on markets, especially in the Sunbelt region, regions of the United States. So south, southwest, southeast, et cetera. Now, there's some public REITs like Camden Properties, Mid-America Apartment Communities that are greatly exposed to this new supply. And what you're seeing is that in some cities, rents are already falling. And this is going to feed into the broader economy and inflation. I expect rent deflation to be fairly significant over the coming two, three years. On apartments, and then it will likely feed into homes as well. Now, apartment building starts fell to a seasonally adjusted annual rate of only 334,000 units in August. That's a 41% decline year over year, 41%. And there are more rental buildings hitting the market in, this, in the next, uh, next year than any time since the 1980s. There's a couple of reasons for this lack of building. One is seeing that new supply come on, but also the cost, cost to build these these apartments. And financing. Before you used to get building financing at 4%, now it's closer to 8, maybe 10%. And then when you're lending against these potential projects, you have to find comps, and there's been, there hasn't been a lot of transactions to come up with reliable, stable values for these projects. And then you have higher costs for materials, employees, insurance. Now, in Denver, there are 30,000 apartments already under construction. And so starts for new ones fell 66,000 in the second quarter this year compared to the average starts of all quarters since 2021. And now construction sector job openings and hirings have fallen in recent months. And if starts continue to decline, you're going to see construction layoffs increase. And that's honestly where job cuts typically start in a big way. And so while everyone's focused on the housing market, I actually think the bigger trouble is in the apartment market. And there's going to be more pain for that part of the economy and the associated businesses. All right, now in the next invest talk, we'll look into the story behind this question. What should investors do amid the route in the stock and bond market? That story tomorrow, but for now I'm Justin Klein, ready to take your questions now at 888 99 chart. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk
2: podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. So as long as your questions involve the stock market or general investment topics and definitions, we set no limits. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Justin and I are ready. Are you? Call with your questions anytime, day or night. Eight 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 ninety nine chart. Hey, Stephen Justin, Bill from New York here. Uh, I wanted to call uh, with regards to Redfin ticker symbol RD FN. Want to get your thoughts on it. With the uh, housing market not doing so great right now, I'm thinking it's it's getting close to a good time to to get into something pertaining to that sector. And uh, looking at Redfin, it, it seems somewhat attractive. And I uh, wanted to get your thoughts on uh, if this is a, uh, a, a good time to buy or maybe at all. And uh, I know it's a uh, short-term, not that great, but longer-term, seems like it could be attractive. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts, and uh, thank you for what you guys do. Take care. Bye.
1: Are looking at Redfin? They provide residential real estate database and broker services in 95 markets in the U.S. and Canada. Now, the bad thing here is that they've always lost money. The positive is that they've recently reached positive free cash flow, really for the only the second time in its history. Now, they did pre during the pandemic. Now, maybe a lot of that had to do with people staying at home, searching online for homes, et cetera, but... They struggled in 2021 and 2022, but they've rebounded. So I like the trajectory of the cash flow, but it, they do have a decent amount of debt in their balance sheet—about a billion dollars in long-term debt and market cap of about 800 million. So free cash flow of 182 million, which, if you go a free by free cash flow yield, that's actually pretty good. That's a pretty good free cash flow yield. But once again, they have a good amount of debt, so that is going to go to servicing that debt. And this has pulled back pretty dramatically. It was at 17, now we're down to 6 bucks per share, about $5, $5.90 to close today. So, I I think this is an interesting name. I'm sorry, it's at 6.96 to close today. Uh, it's an interesting name because of the trends in cash flows, and I would want to know how sustainable that is. Now, if you look at the long-term chart it's starting to make an uptrend but it's still not great so i don't really love the risk versus reward because i don't like the history of the business the history of the business is negative negative cash flow them issuing let's see more shares continue to issue more shares now luckily that's flattened out since the summer they haven't issued more shares since the summer, so that's probably good. Probably because they've hit positive free cash flow. But I need a little bit more to see that that that's that's stable. I know that they're trying to take some market share from like the NR National Association of Realtors. I think all of their Redfin agents are being asked to not become or not be part of uh the NAR. Maybe that's for business purposes, I'm not sure, but. My issue here is the lack of consistency. I like businesses that are more consistent, and this is just too up and down for me. Something that looks to be on the watch list, but if you can see a steady state of positive free cash flow where they're not issuing more shares again and adding to their debt levels, then I could be happy with it. But it's still in a wait-and-see mode for me. All right, let's keep things rolling and play two in a row from the InvestTalk Voice Bank at eight 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 ninety nine chart
2: Hello, Steve or Justin. I'm currently rebalancing my portfolio and eliminating some positions and using that money for Best Buy, ticker symbol BBY, and eventually American Express, ticker symbol AXP, if it falls to the mid-130s. I've been looking at Best Buy for a while because of their strong fundamentals and their future earnings potential. I'd like to know if this is a good idea for both companies. Thank you, and I'll be listening on the podcast.
1: All right. Uh, I I like Best Buy. This is a name we've been starting to pick up as of late. And the reason is, like you said, they have very strong fundamentals, uh, good distribution throughout the country, and a, a very good presence online. Uh, solid dividend, solid cash flow, free cash flow trailing 12 months is $1.8 billion on a market cap of only $14 billion, And they pretty much have no debt on their balance sheet. And so you have a free cash flow yield of over 10%. That's very good. And the dividend is, in our minds, very, very sustainable. Uh, And it's been growing. So uh, we like the balance sheet. We like the longer-term profitability. Return equity right now is 45%. And its five-year average is 49%. Median is 47%. So it's a very, very profitable business. And I think it's very well run. So I like Best Buy. American Express, another solid company. But I think with more potential headwinds, obviously, they take on credit risk by lending to their customers. And then there's potential risk of diversification away from the credit card networks to process transactions. Think of Venmo and Zelle and potentially FedNow. And that's what worries me the most about American Express. Fine Company, I just don't love that. Risk hanging over its head. So if I'm picking one or the other, I'm picking Best Buy. All right. Thanks for the call. Eight eight nine nine chart eight eight nine nine two four two eight is how you get through and ask your question on today's show. And let's talk about drug prices. And we know during the Inflation Reduction Act, Congress, the White House, finally got through the ability to negotiate drug prices on 10 different drugs, 10 of the most expensive drugs in the Medicare system. And these drugs are made by Merck, Johnson & Johnson, Bristol-Myers, Pfizer, etc. And this is the biggest shakeup in drug pricing in more than two decades. And they stipulate prices must fall at least 25% for select commonly used drugs. At least 25%. And these price cuts will start in 2026, and they'll further negotiate on 50 more drugs over the next four years. And this is forecast to save Medicare $100 billion over a decade and cut out-of-pocket costs for patients that they must shoulder themselves. In fact, they'll cap out-of-pocket costs at $2,000 per year. Now, Americans pay the highest prices for prescription drugs in the developed world. And as you would imagine, this has been bitterly opposed by the pharmaceutical industry. And given the partisan nature of politics right now and the power of the pharma lobby, it's pretty shocking that these reforms actually got through. They've been talking about it for decades. Now, the biggest worry is that these reforms will have an impact on R&D budgets and what it will mean for global innovation. We shall see, but I don't feel like the pharma industry has had a ton of great innovations as of late anyway. Think of most of the big boss, blockbuster drugs. They were developed over a decade ago, outside of the COVID vaccines, obviously. Now, there's been a lot of scandal within the pharma industry. You have many pharma companies buying old generic drugs, running it through the uh, approval system and getting patents back on it and raising prices dramatically. That's what Martin Shrelick did. And that didn't turn out well for him, but many other drug companies were doing that. Then you obviously have companies like Eli Lilly, Pfizer, Biogen coming across a lot of controversy over the last couple of decades. Now, U.S. legislators... Banned Medicare from negotiate, negotiating drug prices during the Prescription Drug Act of 2003. So that was under the Bush administration. And that it greatly expanded the spending on drug prices and drove profits dramatically within the industry. Now, some of these reforms have already been implemented including a $35 cap on monthly costs of insulin for Medicare patients. And starting in January of 2025, total out-of-pocket costs, like I said, will be capped at $2,000 per year. And so when you're looking at these drug companies, they can be greatly affected. For example, Eliquis, a blood thinner, the official price is $7,000 per year in the U.S. In Canada, the generic alternative is only $1,700 per year. And so Pfizer, who's the main is the owner of that drug, gets sixteen point four billion dollars last year. Highest amount for any of the 10 drugs selected for negotiation. So when you see Pfizer's price dropping dramatically, it's not just because people are using the COVID vaccine less, it's that their drugs, along with many other companies, are in the crosshairs of negotiators, Medicare negotiators. So when you're looking at these pharma names, you have to take into account the political pressure that's coming out of Washington and how many of their drugs are exposed to this. And how much of their revenue is exposed to this. Because, for example, you think that they're going to be able to get that $7,000 price tag on Eliquis down dramatically? Probably 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 much closer to that $1700 number that Canada is paying so I wanted to highlight this because it's very important to understand this this is exactly what I say when when I when exactly what I mean when I say trying to say it correctly exactly what I mean when I say invest through the windshield not the rear view mirror when you're looking at earnings numbers you have to take into account that that might not be the case next year and the year after. That's what you have to assess. How sustainable is their business? And in the drug industry, there's patent cliffs, and there's now the overhang of all of these drug negotiations. So whenever you're buying a drug company, make sure you understand their exposure to Medicare revenue. All right, now we, we get dot calls from around the world and all over America, and this one came in earlier from Atlanta.
2: Hello, this is Andrew from Atlanta. I was trying to call you guys about uh, GPK, that's Graphic Packaging Holding Company. I own this stock, had it for a while. I'm going to hold it for a while. I'm curious, do you see this growing? Um, Is there something I need to hold? Should I buy some more? I appreciate your advice, and I hope you have a good day. Thank you.
1: All right. This is Graphic Packaging Holding Corporation. They're supposed to earn $2.83 this year after making $2.23 last year. It's up 27%. But earnings are only supposed to grow 1% next year to $2.86. About a 2% dividend yield, and you're probably attracted to that nice low PE ratio of only eight times forward-looking earnings. And I would say, yes, you're correct. It is relatively cheap based on that metric. However, they have a lot of debt on their balance sheet about 5.3 billion in long-term debt on a market cap of 6.6 billion and if you look at their business free cash flow is near an all-time high that's a positive but it's kind of all over the place it's very up and down and as you would imagine with a company that makes packaging as you would graphics packaging holding company let me back up they Manufacture and sell a variety of paper-based consumer pr- packaging products through its many subsidiaries. So paperboard packaging, including for beverages, including beer, soft drinks, as well as food, cereal, frozen food, pet food, etc. Now, the good thing on this is that their profitability historically is pretty good, mid sixteen, mid teens, excuse me, around sixteen percent average over the last five years. The problem, though, for me is that this is mainly driven by debt. So to calculate return on equity, which is a very popular way to look at profitability of a business, means what's the return to you, the shareholder? Well, the calculation, if you break it down, is actually return on assets times leverage. So you can have a relatively low return on assets, But if you employ leverage, you can get that return equity up pretty high. And that works well when interest rates are very low. But now with interest rates rising, I think it becomes more of an issue. And so that's why I don't love this. The technicals were great. They're starting to roll over. Relative strength now is 41. And it's a slow growth name. So something with... High debt with growth that is now flat, maybe even going negative next year, and the technicals rolling over, that combination worries me. And so I'm passing on this. I think everything is lining up for this to re-rate lower, even though you think it's cheap. It can certainly get cheaper. So I'm passing on GPK until there's some stability in their chart. And I see that leverage come down. I want that leverage to come down. I want to see them take that cash flow and pay down debt. Hopefully they do that. All right, we're going to go to a break. All right, thanks for tuning in. This is the Best Talk. I'm Justin Klein. We have one goal here each and every weekday. And that's to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So get your questions in now at 888-99-CHART.
2: Each day, Invest Talk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for Invest Talk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments.
1: Hey guys, love the show.
2: Thanks for everything you guys do. I had a question about Coca-Cola. Uh, had shares of this for years now. and I see it's on a pretty steep decline in the last, you know, most of the last week, but also, you know, this uh, calendar year. Wanted to get your guys' take on the, you know, the infrastructure of Coca-Cola. Thank you so much.
1: Bye. All right, looking at Coke down pretty big today, four point eight nine percent, the lowest level. Let me go all the way back to the beginning of twenty twenty one. Yeah, the first quarter of twenty twenty one. Pretty wild. Down to fifty two dollars and thirty eight cents. Peaked out around. 67 which you know doesn't sound like a huge move but for coke that's a pretty big move and i said this many times that there are three sectors that are they do the worst in rising interest rate environment that would be utilities real estate mainly reits and consumer staples and coke colas been trading at a premium. Even after this drop, it's trading at a 21 times multiple, which is about 10% higher than the market multiple. But it's a slow grower. Earnings are only supposed to go up 6% this year, 6% next year. And they have a good amount of debt on their balance sheet. So if you look at... Yeah, you know, they've about forty billion dollars in net debt, which isn't a ton considering Coke size and market cap of two hundred twenty-six billion. It's fine, not going bankrupt or anything. But the cost the, that cost of the debt is going up, and multiples are just simply coming down. Enterprise enterprise value to EBITDA is now at seventeen times, and if you go back in history, it's typically traded closer to the low teens in more normal interest rate environments. So. I don't love this. I want to pay under a market multiple, not over a market multiple for a slow growth business like Coke. It's a good business. Don't get me wrong. So it'll do very well. $9 billion in free cash flow on $226 billion market cap. It's about a 4% free, 4.5% free cash flow yield. good, but not amazing, especially when you have the the. Short-term Treasury rate of five and a half. So I think there's more room to go to the downside. Let me give you a support level and an area that would be good value. Forty-eight. It's now at fifty-two. That's where I would maybe start thinking uh, picking up. That's where it'd probably be fairly valued. But I need to get it closer to the mid forties for me to say okay, it's cheap. All right. That was Coke K O. Our lastly, let's talk about mortgage rates. Mortgage rates are approaching the daunting 8% level. And we know that the 10-year treasury rate is a proxy for the mortgage rate. So if 10-year goes up, mortgage rates go up as well. But there are other factors at play here on top of that. And the main one is a shrinking Fed balance sheet. And in the first half of 2023, banks and the Fed collectively reduced their portfolios of Agency mortgage-backed securities by about two hundred seven billion dollars. Now, the average thirty-year mortgage last month came in at about six point four percent. That was the average. About one point eight or one point eight percent higher than the average ten-year Treasury rate over the month. Now the. 21st century average was only around 1% higher. So that should be closer to five and a half. But because of what's happening at the Fed and other banks selling off these assets, the spread has widened. And if you add on top of that, the mortgage originators, what they get for making all this happen, there's about a three percentage point gap. To what the average person pays. Because remember, the mortgage-backed security, that's what the, the mortgage-backed security p- pays. What's what the investor gets. But there's other layers to that bef- and what you pay. So there's about a 3% gap between what you're seeing in the 10-year treasury right now. Let's call it a little less than uh, 5%. And so that's why it's approaching that 8% level because the gap is 3. When the pre-pandemic average from 2017 to 2019 was under 2% when the Fed was still buying assets. And so, if the Fed does pivot at some point, which they likely will, maybe tomorrow's a catalyst, we shall see. That gap should, not only should the 10-year fall, but the gap should shrink as well. So, understand these dynamics within the Mortgage market, and you'll have a better sense of what direction mortgage rates will go. I hear a lot of mortgage brokers say, "Oh, I think rates are going to go here or there." Most brokers, they have no clue. They don't know what's happening in the market, in the economy. They don't know what the Fed is going to do. They're just guessing. But if you understand where the Fed balance sheet's going, where Bank balance sheets are going. That can have a big impact on that spread above Treasuries and have a large impact on the ultimate mortgage rate that you and I might be paying. All right, I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve and I thank you for listening, and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review on iTunes. Independent thinking, shared success. This Invest Talk. Good night.
0: Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial at 888-99-CHART.